News of the Times, Murderous Mondays, The Notorious Case of Charles Peace. Welcome to News of the Times. Infamous Charles Peace, still remembered to this day, is a tale of robbery, cunning disguises, obsession and murder. His skill in the art of disguise was legendary owing to his remarkably malleable features allowing him to slip through the grasp of authorities time and again. A violin virtuoso by day, Peace often concealed his housebreaking tools within the hollowed confines of an old violin case. His cat-burgling skills were legendary. Within this framework he killed one police constable attempting to stop him and notoriously let another man hang for his crime. As he watched the innocent man's trial for pleasure, his observation for a married woman led to the murder of her husband and an attempt to catch him in his escape from yet another burglary got another policeman shot. Charles Peace spent over twenty years flouting the law. We take a look at the remarkable case of Charles Peace in today's episode of Murderous Mondays. We hope you enjoy the show. About Charles Peace. Charles Peace was not born of criminal parents. His father, John Peace, began work as a collier at Burton-on-Trent, losing his leg in an accident. He joined Wombwell's Wild Beast Show and soon acquired some reputation for his remarkable powers as a tamer of wild animals. About this time, Peace Senior married the daughter of a surgeon in the Navy at Rotherham. Mr Peace gave up lion taming and settled in Sheffield as a shoemaker. Charles was born in Sheffield on May the 14th, 1832, and he was the youngest of four children. Charles' life of crime began in 1851. On October the 26th, 1851, the house of a lady living in Sheffield was broken into and a quantity of her property stolen. Some of it was found in the possession of peace and he was arrested. Owing no doubt to a good character for honesty given to him by his late employer, Peace was let off lightly with a month's imprisonment. After his release, Peace would seem to have devoted himself for a time to music, for which he always had a genuine passion. He taught himself to play tunes on a violin with only one string, and at entertainments, which he attended, he was described as the modern Paganini. In 1854, Peace was sentenced to four years at Her Majesty's leisure for a multitude of burglaries. From the Sheffield Independent on the 28th of October, 1854, Charles Peace, 22, joiner, Emma Janes, 19, spinster servant, and Mary Ann Neal married fell dresser, and they were indicted for stealing a quantity of rings, brooches, and other jewellery from the house of Mr. Richard Stewart at Brincliffe Crescent. 
Mr. Overend prosecuted. The prisoners were undefended. The house was robbed on the night of the 30th of August, 1854, and the prisoners were proved to have pawned portions of the stolen property and others were found in their possession. Peace, in his defence, said a watchmaker named Bethany in Division Street had kept his sister, Neild, for some years, and she had had three children by him. Bethany, not having given her any money lately, sent the jewellery and a bundle of wearing apparel to her instead of money. The female prisoners declined to say anything in their defence. The jury found all the prisoners guilty of feloniously receiving the property, knowing it to be, have been stolen. Evidence was also given that peace had been previously convicted of felony. Mr. Maud said there were two other indictments against the prisoners for robbery at the houses of Mr. H. E. Hool of Crooks Moor and Mr. George Peart of Sharrow Lane. The court thought it unnecessary to proceed with these cases. Peace was sentenced to four years penal servitude, and the female prisoners to be imprisoned for six months each to hard labour. Released from prison in 1858, Peace finds love with a woman named Hannah Ward, who brought a small son, Willie, with her. The two marry in 1859. In the same year, Peace's beloved sister, Mary Ann Neild, dies. In several reports, it is intimated that her death was indirectly caused by her abusive husband. Later, stories in the mythology that became Charles Peace insinuate that Peace was the later cause of the death of his now deceased sister's husband. In August 1859, Peace breaks into another home and robs it of considerable goods. He buries the booty in a field. The police quickly find the hole with goods in and lay in wait to see who will come back and collect the stolen treasure. Peace is caught once again and is found guilty. Once again, Peace is thrown into prison this time for six years. He is released in 1864, some two years later. Peace is caught burgling another house, this time in Lower Broughton. He is caught again and sentenced to eight years penal servitude in Wakefield Prison. Peace attempts a daring escape from the prison, but is caught. From Wakefield, Peace spends time in Millbank and Chatham prisons, as well, until his release in 1872. In 1875, Peace meets Mr. and Mrs. Dyson. Mr. Dyson was a railway engineer. Mrs. Dyson, 25, was stated to be an attractive woman. Buxom and blooming was how she was referred, and Peace absolutely fell for her. From here, accounts as to the level of their intimacy differ wildly. 
Peace declared that he and Mrs. Dyson had had an affair. She apparently enjoyed his initial attentions, but then found them overwhelming. Peace stated that they had had an intimate romance, and then she effectively jilted him. This quickly became a love-hate obsession, and Peace would haunt the Dysons for years to come. Mrs. Dyson resolutely refuted the idea that she had had any kind of intimacy with Peace, and stated continuously she just wished him to leave her and her husband alone. From the Book of Remarkable Criminals, 1918 In 1875, Peace moved from Sheffield itself to the suburb of Darnall. Here, Peace made the acquaintance, a fatal acquaintance as it turned out, of a Mr. and Mrs. Dyson. Dyson was a civil engineer, and he had spent some years in America, where, in 1866, he married toward the end of 1873, or the beginning of 1874. He came to England with his wife, and obtained a post on the North Eastern Railway. He was a tall man, over six feet in height, extremely thin, and gentlemanly in his bearing. Since the year 1875, the year in which peace came to Darnall, the domestic peace of Mr. Dyson had been rudely disturbed by this same ugly little picture-framer who lived a few doors away from the Dysons' house. Peace had got to know the Dysons first as a tradesman and then as a friend. To what degree of intimacy he, he attained with Mrs. Dyson is difficult to determine. In that lies the mystery of the case. Mrs. Dyson is described as an attractive woman, buxom and blooming. She was dark-haired and about twenty-five years of age. Peace asserted positively that Mrs. Dyson had been his mistress. Mrs. Dyson as strenuously denied the fact. There was no question that on one occasion Peace and Mrs. Dyson had been photographed together, and that he had given her a ring, and that he had been in the habit of going to music halls and public houses with Mrs. Dyson, who was a woman of intemperate habits. According to Mrs. Dyson, Peace was a demon, beyond the power of even a Shakespeare to paint, who persecuted her with his attentions, and when he found them rejected, devoted all his malignant energies to making the lives of her husband and herself unbearable. According to Peace's story, he was a slighted lover who had been treated by Mrs. Dyson with ingratitude. Whether to put a stop to his wife's intimacy with Pierce or to protect himself against the latter's wanton persecution, sometime about the end of June 1876, Dyson threw over into the garden of Pierce's house a card, of which was written, Charles Peace is requested not to interfere with my family. On July the 1st, Pierce met Mr. Dyson in the street and tried to trip him up. 
The same night, he came up to Mrs. Dyson, who was talking with some friends, and threatened in coarse and violent language to blow out her brains and those of her husband. In consequence of these incidents, Mr. Dyson took out a summons against Peace, for whose apprehension a warrant was issued. Peace, it would seem, harboured tremendous ill will that a summons had been called on him, especially with his police record, and he fled to Hull, opening up a small eating establishment that was run by Mrs. Peace. Peace himself travelled to Manchester for another planned robbery that ended up being his first murder. The Wally Range Murder Entering the grounds of a gentleman's home at Wally Range, about midnight on August the 1st, 1876, he was seen by two policemen. One of them, Constable Cock, intercepted him as he was trying to escape. Peace took out his revolver and warned Cock to stand back. The policeman came on. Peace fired, but deliberately wired of him. Cock undismayed, drew out his truncheon and made for the burglar. Peace, desperate and determined not to be caught, fired again, this time fatally. Cox's comrade heard the shots, but before he could reach the side of the dying man, Peace had made off. From the Manchester Evening News on the 2nd of August, 1876, a shocking murder at Wally Range. A policeman shot, arrest of three men. A brutal and cold-blooded murder was committed early this morning at Wally Range, not far from the gates of Manly Hall. As far as can at present be ascertained, the crime was committed from motives of revenge and with deliberation which shows that it had been planned in cold blood. It appears that Nicholas Cock, about 23 years of age, member of the county constabulary, went on duty as usual that night, and he was timed to arrive at West Point at midnight, and about that time last night he reached the place. For some distance along Chorlton Lane he was accompanied by Mr. Simpson, a young gentleman whose father, solicitor, resided in Upper Chorlton Road. Mr. Simpson wished Cock good night at the junction and then proceeded towards his own home. He had only walked a little distance when he heard the report of a firearm. He stopped to listen and immediately afterwards there was a second report. The sound came from West Point and thinking all was not right, he ran back. Naturally, his first action was to look for the policeman who he had left standing at the corner of Chalton Lane, but he was nowhere to be seen. Mr. Simpson, however, heard someone crying murder and accordingly looked more closely about him. He then saw Cock lying along the curbstone. He knelt down beside him and saw that he had been wounded in the right breast. Just at this time, two other constables, who had been only two or three hundred yards off at the time of the occurrence, and had heard the shots, came up, and Sergeant Thompson 
who was in Wally Range, also arrived immediately after. Cock was raised up, and it was then seen that he was still alive, but bleeding profusely. His coat was saturated with blood, and his face and neck were also much blood-stained. His helmet had fallen off, and on his left cheekbone was a bruise, as he had hit his face on the curb. There was no sign of any struggle having taken place, though there were several footmarks about, as the ground was very soft through the recent rains. P.C. Cock dies from his wounds, and pressure is high to find the killer of one of their own, immediately. Peace had returned to Hull, and there learned shortly after, to his intense relief, that two brothers, John and William Habron, living near the scene of the murder, had been arrested and charged with the killing of Constable Cock. Peace was highly interested in the fate of John and William Habron, who were about to stand their trial for Peace's murder of Constable Cock at Wally Range. The trial commenced at the Manchester Assizes before Mr Justice, now Lord Lindley, on Monday, November the 27th. George Habron was acquitted. The case against William Habron depended to a great extent on the fact that he, as well as his brother, had been heard to threaten to do for the murdered man, to shoot the little Bobby. In July of 1876, P.C. Cock had taken out summonses against John and William Habron, young fellows who had been several years in the employment of a nurseryman in Wally Range for being drunk and disorderly. On July the 27th, William was fined five shillings, and on August the 1st, the day of Cox's murder, John had been fined half a sovereign. Between these two dates, the Habron brothers had been heard to threaten to do for Cox if he were not more careful. Other facts relied upon by the prosecution were that William Habron had inquired from a gunsmith the price of some cartridges a day or two before the murder, and that two cartridge percussion caps had been found in the pocket of a waistcoat given to William Habron by his employer, who swore that they could not have been there while it was in his possession, and that the other constable on duty with Cock stated that a man he had seen lurking near the house at about twelve o'clock on the night of the murder appeared to be William Habron's age, height, and complexion, and resembled him in general appearance, and that the boot on Habron's left foot, which was wet and sludgy at the time of his arrest, corresponded in certain aspects with the footprints of the murderer. Habron did not help himself by an ineffective attempt to prove an alibi. The judge was clearly not impressed by the strength of the case for the prosecution. He pointed out to the jury that neither the evidence of identification nor that of the footprint went very far. As to the footprint, what evidence was there to show that it had been made on the night of the murder?
He called their attention to the facts that Habron bore a good character and that, when arrested on the night of the murder, he was in bed and that no firearm had been traced to him. In spite, however, of the judges summing up, the jury convicted William Habron but recommended him to mercy. The judge, without comment, sentenced him to death. The Manchester Guardian expressed its entire concurrence with the verdict of the jury. Few persons, it wrote, will be found to dispute the justice of the conclusions reached. However, a few days later, it opened its columns to a number of letters protesting against the unsatisfactory nature of the conviction. On December the 6th, a meeting of some 40 gentlemen was held at which it was resolved to petition Mr. Cross, the Home Secretary, to reconsider the sentence. Two days before the day of execution, Habron was granted a respite, and later his sentence commuted to one of penal servitude for life. And so, a tragic and irrevocable miscarriage of justice was happily averted. Peace apparently enjoyed the trial. The fact that in Habron's case he was the real murderer would seem to have made him the more eager not to miss so unique an experience. Accordingly, he went from Hull to Manchester and was present in court during the two days that the trial lasted. No sooner had he heard the innocent man condemned to death that he left Manchester for Sheffield. Now, potentially as a double murderer, Police Constable Cock and the unfortunate William Habron had been sentenced to death. With the Habron trial over for the murder he had committed, Peace returns his full attention to the Dysons. Peace was kept informed of all their doings, and on one occasion was seen by Mrs. Dyson lurking near her home. To get away from him, the Dysons determined to leave Darnall. They took a house at Banner Cross, another suburb of Sheffield, and on October the 29th moved into their new home. One of the first persons Mrs. Dyson saw on arrival at Banner Court was Peace himself. You see, he said, I am here to annoy you, and I'll annoy you wherever you go. Later, Peace and a friend passed Mr. Dyson in the street. Peace took out his revolver. If he offers to come near me, said he, I will make him stand back. But Mr. Dyson took no notice of Peace and passed on. Dyson did not know that he only had another month to live. Peace's hatred of Dyson potentially came from many motives. Unreasoning passion, spite, jealousy or revenge. But most importantly, Peace felt that by Dyson procuring a warrant against him, Peace felt that he had been driven from his home in Sheffield. This Peace resented bitterly. According to the statements of many witnesses, 
he was at this time in a state of constant irritation and excitement on the Dyson's account. He struck his daughter because she alluded in a way that he did not like regarding his relations with Mrs. Dyson. Pleasant and entertaining as peace could be, he was feared. It was very dangerous to incur his resentment. Be sure, said his wife, you do nothing to offend our Charlie, or you will suffer for it. Dyson beyond a doubt, had offended our Charlie. The Bannercross murder. It is questionable whether, on the night of November the 28th, Peace met Mrs. Dyson at an inn in one of the suburbs of Sheffield. We do know that on Wednesday the 29th of November, Peace came to Sheffield supposedly to attend the fair. Peace paid a second visit to the Reverend Mr. Newman, who had visited five weeks before to give inf information regarding the character of the new parishioners to the area, Mr. and Mrs. Dyson. This time, Peace had brought supposed proof as to their character with calling cards and a photograph of himself and Mrs. Dyson. Dyson, he said to the Reverend, had become jealous of him, whereupon Peace had suggested to Mrs. Dyson that they should give her husband something to be jealous about. Out of this proposal, their intimacy had sprung. Peace spoke to Mrs. Dyson in terms of forgiveness, but his wrath against Mr. Dyson was extreme. He complained bitterly that by taking proceedings against him, Dyson had driven him to break up his home and become a fugitive in the land. He should follow the Dysons, he said, wherever they might go. He believed that they were at that moment intending to take further proceedings against him. A little after eight o'clock, Peace was watching the Dyson house from a passageway that led up to the backs of the houses on the terrace. He saw Mrs. Dyson come out of the back door and go to an outhouse some few yards distant. He waited, and as soon as she opened the door to come out, Mrs. Dyson found herself confronted by Peace, holding his revolver in his hand. Speak, he said, and I'll fire. Mrs. Dyson, in terror, went back. In the meantime, Dyson Hearing the disturbance came quickly into the yard. Peace fired once, the shot striking the lintel of the passage doorway. Dyson, undaunted, still pursued. Then Peace fired a second time, and Dyson fell, shot through the temple. Mrs. Dyson, who had come into a yard again on hearing the first shot, rushed to her husband's side, calling out, Murder! You villain! You've shot my husband! Two hours later, Dyson was dead. After firing the second shot, Peace had hurried away. He walked to Attercliffe Railway Station and took a ticket for Beverley. Something suspicious in the manner of the booking clerk made him change his place of destination. Instead of going to Beverley that night, 
he got out of the train at Normanton and went on to York. We'll be back after a quick break. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. He travelled via Collingham to Hull and went straight to the eating house kept by his wife and demanded some dinner. He had hardly commenced to eat it when he heard two detectives come into the front shop and ask his wife if a man called Charles Peace was lodging with her. Mrs. Peace said that was her husband's name, but that she had not seen him for two months. The detectives proposed to search the house. Peace managed to slip up to a back room, get out onto an adjoining roof, and hide behind a chimney stack, where he remained until the detectives had finished an exhaustive search. For some three weeks he contrived to remain in Hull, although police searched extensively for him. He shaved the grey beard he had at the time of Dyson's murder, dyed his hair, put on a pair of spectacles, and for the first time made use of his singular power of contorting his features in such a way as to change altogether the character of his face. But the human cry after him was unremitting. There was a price of a hundred pounds on his head, and wanted posters with his description were placed on walls and sent to other police forces. From the Eastern Daily Press, the 11th of December, 1876, the murder at Sheffield. A man was apprehended at Barrow yesterday, believed to be Charles Peace, who murdered a civil engineer named Dyson at Sheffield on Wednesday week. Peace was enamoured of Mrs. Dyson and shot her husband in his own garden as he was on his way to his wife, whom Peace had molested. Since the murder, all traces were lost of him until yesterday. The newspaper article was wrong. Peace continues to elude the police with his many disguises. He was said that in his confidence in his ability to change his appearance and outwit the police, he bragged of going into police stations to look at his own wanted ads on the wall. As Peace moved around to evade police, he temporarily settled in Nottingham and becomes acquainted with the Susan Gray, also known as Susan Bailey and Sue Thompson. Susan becomes Peace's mistress. Peace goes under the name of Mr. Thompson of Peckham whilst residing there. Peace continued to burgle houses and there was a noted huge increase in robberies in the Blackheath area. With this sudden crime increase in the area, police were put on high alert. 
Charles Peace Court. At about two o'clock in the morning of October the 10th, 1878, Police Constable Robinson saw a light appear suddenly in a window at the back of a house in St. John's Park, Blackheath, the residence of a Mr. Burness. P.C. Robinson summoned to his aid two of his colleagues. One of them went round to the front of the house and rang the bell. The other waited in the road outside while Robinson stayed in the garden at the back. No sooner had the bell rung that Robinson saw a man come from the dining room window which opened onto the garden and make quickly down the path. Robinson followed him and the man turned and said, Keep back, he said, or by God, I'll shoot you. Robinson came on. The man fired three shots from a revolver, all of which passed close to the officer's head. Robinson made another rush for him. The man fired another shot and it missed its mark. The constable closed with his would-be assassin and struck him in the face. I'll settle you this time, cried the man, and he fired a fifth shot, which went through Robinson's arm just above the elbow. But, despite his wound, the valiant officer held on to his prisoner and succeeded in flinging him to the ground. Peace was captured, but it would take some time before the police figured this out. Taken to the police station, Peace now gives his name as John Ward. With darkened skin and other changes to his hair, he looked nothing at all like the most wanted criminal of his time, Charles Peace. Meanwhile, his mistress, Susan Thompson, who described herself as not being the sentimental type, is caught by police to be in possession of stolen property. The decision is easy for her. She tips off the police that the John Ward arrested for the burglary and shooting of a police officer is in fact Charles Peace, by which she expects to have the charges of stolen property dropped and to receive the £100 reward that leads directly to the arrest of Charles Peace. Peace is caught. From the Derbyshire Times, the 23rd of November, 1878, the trial of Charles Peace for attempted murder, verdict and sentence, his appeal to the court for mercy. Charles Peace, known in Sheffield as the Bannercross murderer, but in London as John Ward, the perpetrator of many of the burglaries at Blackheath, on Tuesday made the acquaintance of Mr Hawkins at the Old Bailey. Not, however, upon the charge of murder. That is an ordeal which the prisoner has yet to undergo. But the indictment which he answered was only one step removed. It was that of attempting to murder a policeman. Police Constable Robinson saw him emerge from a house at Blackheath, which he had burglariously entered. Peace had fired five shots at P.C. Robinson from the same revolver, probably as that which he made use of at Sheffield on a memorable occasion two years before. The case did not come on till very late in the afternoon, and John Ward, alias Charles Peace, stepped into the dock. Surely that insignificant little man cannot be a murderer 
and a notorious burglar, said one of the spectators, as Peace, coming into full view, stood at the bar to plead to the indictment which the clerk was reading. And certainly, unless you looked very carefully at his face, there was nothing to convey the impression that the man now nervously holding the top of the dock was anything more than an ordinary criminal. At the first sight, he looked anything but a criminal, with a clean-shaven face, with silvery white hair, with spectacles on his nose, and with an assumed expression of injured innocence. He looked absolutely out of place at the large dock of the Old Bailey. The smallness of his statue, too, added something to the favourable impression which at first sight the prisoner conveyed. He was attired in a black coat and vest, his shirt collar white, and as he stood listening to some half-dozen counts in the indictment, he looked, as far as outward appearances went, entirely respectable. Plead not guilty, said his solicitor, in anything but a whisper, and so, when the clerk had come to the end of the long pieces of parchment from which he was reading, Peace answered, not guilty, in a voice so meek and subdued that it would have suited a woman who had just been made the acquaintance of by the police. Though outwardly at first he appeared calm enough, he was observed to wince when he was spoken of as Charles Peace, and as the case proceeded, the perspiration standing on his forehead and a slight backward and forward motion showed that he was labouring under suppressed excitement. The case did not last long when the evidence was commenced. The police constable, Robinson, made a simple statement running through the encounter with peace attempting to flee the house he was burgling and his capture. Mr Justice Hawkins summed up the case, and it was looked upon as a foregone conclusion that the prisoner would be found guilty of the most serious count of the indictment. This proved to be the case, for after a few minutes the jury announced that the prisoner was guilty of the attempted murder of the policeman. Humble as he had been throughout the trial, no sooner was the verdict given that he became humbler still, and looked towards the judge in a piteous, pleading kind of way, which had, in the case of such a man as Peace, something almost comical about it. That the appeal had no effect upon Mr Justice Hawkins was very soon apparent, for he talked in a severe tone and in the course of a few chosen sentences expressed his opinion as to what sort of man the prisoner was and the length he would go to accomplish his ends. A sentence of penal servitude for life followed. This was only the start of the trials for peace. Peace was to be called on to answer to the murder of Arthur Dyson. The aggrieved widow of the murdered man had been found in America, whither she had returned after her husband's death. She was quite ready to come to England to give evidence against her husband's murderer. On January the 17th, 
1879, Pease was taken from Pentonville Prison, where he was serving his sentence, and conveyed by an early morning train to Sheffield. There, at the town hall, he appeared before the stipendary magistrate and was charged with the murder of Arthur Dyson. When he saw Mrs. Dyson enter the witness box and tell her story of the crime, he must have realised that his case was desperate. Her cross-examination was adjourned to the next hearing, and peace was taken back to London. On the 22nd, the day of the second hearing in Sheffield, an enormous crowd had assembled outside the town hall, and inside the court an anxious and expectant audience awaited the appearance of infamous Charles Peace. Great was the disappointment and eager the excitement when the stipendary came into the court about a quarter past ten and stated that Peace had attempted to escape that morning on the journey from London to Sheffield, and that in consequence of his injuries the case would be adjourned for eight days. Recognising that he was doomed, Peace made a desperate attempt to escape from the train, which was partially successful. He did indeed manage to fling himself off the train, but with damage. His battered and bruised body was picked up off the line, and he was taken back to be tried for the murder of Mr. Dyson. The trial was salacious. Peace's solicitor hammered away at Mrs. Dyson, effectively proving that an intimacy had indeed occurred between the two. However, this did little to mitigate the clear murder charge of Peace. Peace is found guilty and sentenced to death. Whilst in prison, and understanding that he will indeed be executed, Peace, who considered himself a religious man, admits to the murder of P.C. Cock, thereby allowing for the release of the imprisoned William Habron. In the end, he seemed resigned to his fate. On February the 24th, 1879, Charles Peace was executed by William Marwood. It was a quick death. He was 46 years of age. Postscript. Several days after Pierce's execution, Mrs. Dyson permanently emigrated back to America. She continued to insist that there had been no intimacy with Charles Peace and that she had loved her husband. Susan Thompson's claim for the £100 reward leading to the capture of Charles Peace was rejected. She had also declined to help Peace financially for his legal defence. Peace, although he knew of her betrayal, forgave her. They did not see each other whilst he was waiting for his execution, and she was not charged with any offence regarding receiving stolen goods. Hannah Peace was found not guilty at the Old Bailey for receiving stolen goods and continued to visit her husband until the day of his execution. Hannah died in 1891. That concludes this episode of Murderous Mondays, the notorious case of Charles Peace. We very much hope you enjoyed the show. 
If you did enjoy the show, we will be grateful if you could like or subscribe to our little channel. We upload five days a week. Mondays are murderous as we delve into the dark side of Regency and Victorian crime. Wednesdays are wicked where we pull together stories with a similar theme, such as Doctors of Death. Fridays are frightful where we look at crimes in a location, such as stories from the stage to murder and scandal in the aristocracy. Saturdays is Serial Killer Saturdays, where we investigate serial killer stories from the past. And Sundays is a bit of fun, with a unique mini-murder mystery where you, the listener, have a chance to solve a murderous riddle. On the last Sunday of the month, we offer a two-hour compilation of stories based around a theme. Thank you again for watching and listening. This has been News of the Times, and I am Robin Coles.